to open back up to the book of 1 John. Uh, so we're going to take a break um, from our study in the book of Exodus, and we're going to pick back up in our study of the book of 1 John this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I would like to invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 12 this morning. 1 John 5, 6 through 12. If you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, uh, you can find our text on page 1023, 1023. Uh, so as you're turning there, I want to take just a second to review what we've seen so far in the book of 1 John, uh, in this letter. It's been a few weeks since we've been in it. If you remember, <clears throat> the main purpose of John's writing this letter is he is working to assure his church of their genuine faith. This is made really clear in several passages in 1 John, but I want to read to us 1 John 5, 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. If you remember, there's a group of people who have left that church and who are traveling around teaching incorrect things about Jesus, and their teaching was causing confusion and a lot of uncertainty in the church that John was pastoring. Now, John refers to these, uh, these cessationists, these people who have left, as antichrists. We talked about that. They're antichrists with a little a. And he is working to refute the teachings of these antichrists by affirming the truths of the gospel to which the church held. That's how he's working to encourage their genuine faith in order to refute these false teachers. Now, John has been affirming these Christians, and the way that he's gone about doing this is giving them these different proofs, or these different tests, as we've been calling them, to affirm their faith, to show them that their faith is genuine. If you remember, the first test we looked at is the truth test. The truth test. And the truth test is basically, do you rightly believe that Jesus is God's Son? Now, we're going to see in our text this morning that John is going to drill down deeper into this truth test. The second was the repentance test, or you might call it the life test. Do you seek to obey God's word? Are God's commandments to you a burden to obey, or are they your delight? Do you see your sin primarily as an affront to God and His holiness? That's the repentance test, or the life test. And then lastly, the love test. The love test. Do you love your other brothers and sisters in Christ, or have you given up on the local church? If you genuinely love God, John says that you will love those whom God loves. So do you love your brothers and sisters? Again, this morning we're going to drill down onto this first test, this truth test, and we're going to see the importance of rightly understanding and rightly believing who Jesus is. So with that, let's read our text for this morning. I uh, hope you're there by now, and I want to invite you to stand with me one more time, if you're able, in honor of reading God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. 1 John 5, 6-12. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For these three, 
These are the three that testified, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. But whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing on our time this morning as we study your word. We pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, teaching us, correcting us, rebuking us, showing us our sin and our need of repentance, and showing us the hope that we have in Christ and in Christ alone. I pray that your word would do its work in our hearts this morning and give us faith. I pray these things in your name. Amen. You guys can be seated. I want to ask you a question. It might seem like a simple question, but I think it's a good question. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? That might sound like a really, really easy question to answer. But if you look in our culture today, if you're paying attention to what's going on in the church and in the world around us, you will find that this question is actually hazed in all kinds of ambiguity. It's not as easy of a question to answer as you might initially think. There are all kinds of ideas out there about what it means to be a Christian. Some people would say that being a Christian means to hold to a certain set of moral principles. Right? So... They would say that at the core of what it means to be a Christian is that you oppose things like homosexual marriage, or you oppose abortion, or you oppose gambling, or you oppose drinking, or if you're a good Southern Baptist, you oppose dancing, right? But is that at the core of what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ? Or is being a Christian fundamentally about being a spiritual person? Right? I've heard this a lot. I've heard a lot of people say, well, Pastor, I, I don't go to church. I, I don't have time for church. I don't have time for the people of church. But I am a person of deep and sincere faith. I have a deep and sincere faith. Perhaps some of you have heard that as well. My question to that person typically is, what in the world does that mean? You're a person of, what does that mean? You're a person of deep faith. And, and typically their answers go something along the lines of this. Well, well, I believe that God exists. Okay, good. I believe that God in some way uh, cares for me. Okay, well, well that's good. Well, I, I pray a lot, and, and I believe that God's going to take care of me if, if I'm ever in a time of need. But primarily what they mean is that there's some kind of deep-seated emotional response to things that are spiritual or mystical of some sort. 
But I've never heard a person say to me that I don't have time for church, I don't go to church, I don't care about the people of God or anything like that, but I'm a, I'm a person of deep faith. I've never heard them respond and say anything about Jesus. You ever notice that? Very rarely do they say anything about Jesus. And I think that's a problem. So being a Christian can't fundamentally mean that we're a spiritual person. Some would say that being a Christian is primarily about love and acceptance. So being a follower of Jesus means that we should include everyone and we should oppose anyone on any grounds if they cut against the grain of what it means to love like Jesus loved. So if, it, if I disagree with anyone, or if I say, if I make any type of moral claim to say this is right or this is wrong, that I fundamentally do not understand what it means to be loving and accepting like Jesus was. So they would say that being a Christian primarily means that you love all people and that you accept all people. But probably more familiar to us is this idea that being a Christian is just being part of a church. Now, <clears throat> there may be some of you here today, this morning, that if I were to ask you, what does it mean that you're a Christian? When you say you're a Christian, what do you mean by that? In your mind, you say, well, I've been a member of this church, or I've been a member of a church like this for decades. But does being part of a church, does being a part of, uh, uh, on the membership role of a church, is that the best foundation upon which to rest our assurance of faith? I, I don't think so. It's really, really easy to join a church. Even churches that guard their membership roles, anybody can join. I, I'm just going to let you in on that little secret. It's real easy to join a church. Right? So I think that's a weak foundation upon which to build our definition of what it means to be a Christian. Well, John's main idea in this verse, is his thesis statement, if you will, is this that those with genuine saving faith, those who are genuinely Christians, believe rightly about Jesus. Those with genuine saving faith believe rightly about Jesus. I think that's John's argument in our verses this morning, and I want to unpack that. we got three points there, and that brings us to our first point. Number one, what it means to be a Christian is that Jesus is the object of our faith. Jesus is the object of our faith. Now, obviously, for those of us who would call ourselves Christians, this is something of central importance. This is the foundation. If we are going to base our entire lives upon Jesus, if we're going to claim our victory over sin and death in Him, if we're going to lean upon Him and rely upon Him, and look to Him in our times of need if our entire life is going to be centered around obeying His will, then we must be absolutely certain about who He is and what He came to do. Okay? So Jesus is the object of our faith. Now, here John is saying that Jesus is rightly the object of our faith, because he has been revealed as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Now, he's been revealed in this way 
by what he did while he was here on earth. Okay, so follow me here. The way John makes this argument, it's a little bit complicated. Actually, I think uh, these first couple of verses in this passage are the hardest to understand in the entire letter of 1 John. Because you've got John talking about Jesus coming by water, and Jesus coming not only by water, but also by blood. And then you've got the Spirit giving testimony with the water and the blood. And all three of them are in agreement. And what does that all mean? <laughs> right? That's the question. What is John talking about with this water and the blood and the Spirit? Well, I think in order to understand what John's talking about here, we need to take a step back and look at the big picture of what John is teaching. Okay? So what John is teaching in the context of this passage is that, is that Jesus is God's Son. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. And so apart from understanding who John is teaching us that Jesus is, we are not going to be able to understand this whole water and blood and spirit business. Okay? So Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. So what in the world does John mean when he says that Jesus came by water and blood? Well, there are a lot of ways in which these verses are interpreted. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you my understanding of what John is saying here. Now, if you want to know, if you're curious uh, and you want to know how some other people interpret their understanding of water and blood and what that means and why I think this is the best view... Uh, come grab me later. I would be happy to share with you uh, all of my research and those kinds of things, but I just don't have time this morning uh, to cover all that. But here's what, here's what I understand Jesus to be saying by, I mean, John to be saying by Jesus coming by water and blood, okay? So when John says that Jesus came by water, I think that this is a reference to Jesus' ministry as the Messiah, which began publicly at Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan, right? So Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan. He comes up out of the water. The Spirit descends upon Jesus, and you hear God the Father speaking from heaven in an audible voice saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Right? Reference back to Psalm, or Psalm 2. So I think when, when John here is saying that Jesus came by water, it's first with reference to Jesus' baptism. But I think it's more than just his baptism. Because you see, John said that Jesus was going to come and that he was going to have a ministry of his own. Right? And that ministry that Jesus was going to have was going to be a ministry of baptism. But it wasn't just going to be a ministry of baptism by water. It was also going to be a ministry of baptism by the Holy Spirit and with fire. You remember this? Remember this from John chapter 1? Right, so I think when, when John is saying here that Jesus came by water, this is in reference to Jesus' earthly ministry beginning at his baptism and the pronouncement of, from God the Father that he is his son with whom he is well pleased and the spirit descending on Jesus like a dove would. Okay, so all three members of the Trinity are present there. And this is the proclamation of Jesus as God's Son, the Messiah. Okay? So if, if water, if we understand that Jesus coming by water is with reference to his baptism and his baptism ministry, the second part may be a little bit clearer, maybe a little bit 
easier to understand, and it seems to be the part that John is emphasizing in these verses. I'm talking about the blood here. So what do you think the blood is with reference to? Well, I think it's in reference to his sacrificial death on the cross. Right? Jesus' death on the cross, that he came not only by water, uh, but also by blood, that he came to live and to die for us. You remember what John said in 1 John 1, 7? It says, the blood of Jesus covers our sin. So I think this is in reference to Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And so when Jesus says, or when John says that Jesus came by water and by blood, it's testament, it's proof that Jesus' life, his ministry, and his death all point us to the fact that Jesus is God's Son. He's the long-awaited Messiah sent from God. He is the Savior of the world, exclusively. Now, why is John taking time here to stress that Jesus came not only by water, but also by blood? Right? He says he didn't just come by water, he also came by blood. Well, remember, there are those, those antichrists, those cessationists, those false teachers that were traveling around teaching false things about Jesus, and one of those false things that they would teach about Jesus is that Jesus was, yes, fully man. And Jesus became God at his baptism. When the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus, then Jesus became not only man, but also God. And then at Jesus' death, right, somehow the Holy Spirit left him, and he was no longer God hanging on the cross. He was just a man and G and John is refuting saying no no Jesus is the eternal son of God who came by water and by blood and the spirit gives testimony with that water and the blood and all three of those things agree Jesus is God's son see the death of Jesus on the cross is a central focus of our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. So friends, let me ask you this morning. What will you do with your sin? What will you do with your sin? Christianity is the only faith that gives a satisfactory answer to that question. You realize that? Christianity is the only faith that gives a satisfactory answer to the question, what will you do with your sin? You see, most people don't become Christians because all of their intellectual questions get answered. It's just not the way it works. Most people become Christians because they see that Jesus is the only satisfying answer to certain questions that they need answered questions like that one what will you do with your sin john is helping us all to see and to understand that jesus lived a perfect life that none of us could ever live and he died on the cross and he took the punishment for our sins that we deserve and as he hung on that tree god took his wrath and put it on his son as our perfect sacrifice so that we could be forgiven of our sins and that Jesus rose again from the dead, defeating sin and defeating death, so that those who would put their trust in Jesus might have eternal life 
with him. He is the only one that is trustworthy enough for you to put your faith in. Well, pastor, how can I know that for sure? How can I know for sure? Well, that's a good question, and that's the exact question that John answers next. Point two in your notes. God is the author of our faith. God is the author of our faith. Now, let's say you had a buddy, you had a friend, and that friend went on a fishing trip, okay? Friend went on a fishing trip, and your friend comes back from the fishing trip, and you see him at work the next day, and what's the first thing you ask him? Did you catch anything? Did you catch anything? And let's say your friend said, yeah, man, I caught a fish this big. Would you believe him? No, you wouldn't believe him. You know why? Because all fishermen are liars, right? They all lie. Sure, he may have caught a fish, but it wasn't that big. They don't make fish that big in the lake you were fishing in, buddy. No way. You don't believe him because he's a liar. But let's say two or three of your other friends went on that fishing trip with him. And while you're sitting there arguing with your buddy, man, you're pulling my leg. You didn't, you didn't pull a fish out of that lake that big. What if his other friend said, yeah, he did. I saw it. He pulled it in all by himself, man. It, you know, it was, a, it was that big, I promise. It, you know, random crazy, but it was that big. And let's say one of them even pulls his cell phone out of his pocket and says, see, look. And he's got a picture on his phone of your buddy standing there with a fish that big, right? <clears throat> would you believe him then? Of course you would. Because he's provided witness. He's provided testimony to the fact that what he said was true, right? Now look what John does here. Look what John does next. Look, look, down, um, look down in verse uh, 9. If we receive the testimony of men, if we receive the testimony of men, if you would believe your lying fisherman of a friend, the testimony of God is greater. You see what John does there? If you would receive the testimony, if you would receive the witness of men who can dupe you, who could trick you, and who by their nature are sinners and will lie to you, right? If you receive that testimony as true, how much more should you receive the testimony of God who cannot lie? That's the question that John is asking, right? Of course. That's, that, that's what John's getting at. Of course you should believe God because the testimony that God bore concerning His Son is the truth. Notice above in verse 8, it says the Spirit, or in verse, uh, actually jump back to, um, it's in verse 6, the last part of verse 6. The Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So here you have the Trinity all working together to testify to the truth of this witness concerning who Jesus is. You've got Jesus testifying in himself by his works, by his life and his death. That's the water and the blood. You've got the Spirit bearing witness to the truth about who Jesus is. And now you have God the Father giving us this testimony himself. And if we would believe the testimony of men, how much more should we believe the testimony of God? What, what John is, is getting at here. God is not 
a liar. That's a big difference between your fishing buddy and God. He's not a liar. I once had a conversation with a friend who, who was not a Christian. We used to have dinner together. We used to uh, eat together when I worked at Chick-fil-A. I was in seminary, and we would take our dinner breaks together, and we would sit down, and we would eat. And he would ask questions, and, uh, and I would answer, and I would ask him questions, and he would answer, and we would go back and forth, and I was sharing the gospel with him. And there was one time in particular, he got a little bit irritated with me, and I remember him saying, you Christians think you're so much smarter than everybody else. That one stung me. You Christians think you're so much smarter than everybody else. Sometimes I think that we as Christians can think that we're Christians because we are smarter and more clever enough to understand the truth about God course that is not what I meant at all and I had to I had to ask for his forgiveness because of my attitude and because of my demeanor but I think sometimes we as Christians we can come across as you know as people who are just kind of intellectually arrogant as if we had something to do with our understanding of who God is we don't believe that we know the truth as Christians because we're smarter or because we're more clever or because we're better than everyone else. We believe that we know the truth about Jesus because God has revealed it to us in His Word. We read this Word, we hear this testimony, and by God's grace and in God's goodness, He opens our eyes to see the truth. You see, brothers and sisters, God is the author of our faith. He's the one who gives us this faith. It's not on our own cleverness. It's not in our own intellectual capacity. God has revealed it to us. He's given it to us. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is sitting around with his disciples. And he asks them a question. He says, who, who do people say that I am? And you remember what the disciples said? Well, well some say that you're John the Baptist. And some say that you're Elijah. Some, some say that you're Jeremiah or one of the other Old Testament prophets. And then Jesus flips the question on him and he says, okay, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, ever the mouth of that group, right, spoke up and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And do you remember what Jesus said to Simon in that moment? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal these things to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Simon didn't come to understand that Jesus was God's son, that he was the Christ, because he was able to look at what Jesus was doing and he kind of figured it all out on his own. God opened his blind eyes and opened his hard heart to see and to hear and to believe God is the author of our faith. Christian faith is not the arrogant imposition of our own intelligence upon other people. It's our humble acceptance of God's testimony as the author of our faith. Christian brothers and sisters, if this is true, if God is the author of our faith, if he has revealed himself to us through his word, 
we ought to make it our life's business to know His Word. In your laps, perhaps in the back seats of some of your cars, and on the bookshelves of your homes covered in dust, there is a book that contains the revelation of the Creator of the universe. The God who made us all. He has spoken and He has revealed Himself to us through His Word. And my fear is, my fear is, is that too often we leave those books covered in dust on our shelves and to be faded by the sun in our back seats. And some of us don't even bring them with us to church. Sometimes, sometimes Sunday morning is the only time we open the book. Right? Sometimes people don't even open the book then. They don't even bring it with them. But as Christians, if we believe that God has revealed Himself to us through this book, it ought to be our life's mission to know this book. Friends who are here who are not Christians, I want to challenge you this morning. Read the Bible. If you have questions about God, if you're curious about who Jesus is, read the Bible. A good place to start is in John's Gospel. Go to the book of John and just, and just read. God has revealed himself to us in that word. And so just go and read. Hear the testimony of God concerning his son and know that it is true and that it's trustworthy because God is not a liar. But there's a warning in this as well. If you hear God's testimony, that Jesus is God's Son, and He is your perfect Savior, and you do not place your faith in Him, John says here, you make God out to be a liar. Now there's other places in John's writing that he teaches us the same thing. 1 John 1.10 says, if we say we're not sinners, which is to deny what God says about us, we make God a liar and His truth is not in us. 1 John 2.22-33, he denies that Jesus is God's Son. He who denies that Jesus is God's Son does not know the Father, and the truth is not in Him. John chapter 10, in verse 22, Jesus tells the Pharisees who are seeking to arrest Him that He came from the Father, and they don't believe in Him because they don't know the Father. Well, what's the result? What's the result of believing this testimony and and is there any consequence for not accepting this testimony, not receiving this testimony? Well, that's another great question, and that's exactly what John answers next. Let's look there uh, at verses 11 through 12, and that's point three in your notes, that the effect, uh, the eternal life is the effect of our faith. Eternal life is the effect of our faith. <clears throat> verses 11 through 12. Now, really, there's two questions that John picks up here, and the first one's in verse 11. So let's look, look down at verse 11. And this is the testimony. Okay? So you've, you've been hearing about this witness, you know, the, the water and the blood and the Spirit, and God the Father bearing testimony about the Son. Well, what is the testimony? What is it that they're testifying to? Well, John tells us here, verse 11, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. That's the testimony. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Now, there are two things there to see, right? 
The first thing that we need to see is that this life, this eternal life, is a gift that God gives. It's a gift that God gives. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we gain by doing good or being good people. It's a gift that is uh, given to us, right? Not because we've associated ourselves with the right people. We didn't win it by our love and acceptance of everyone around us. It's a gift that God has given. Second, notice the means by which he gives us this gift. God gives us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So the means by which God gives us this gift is through his Son. We receive this gift by faith in the Son, by believing that Jesus is God's Son and that he lived a perfect life for us and died on the cross to take away our sins and rose again from the dead so that we can be born again to new life. So that's the first question, right? What is this testimony? And the second question is, what is the means by which, right? Or what is the, what is the effect? I'm sorry, what is the effect of this faith? What's the effect of this faith? John answers that so clearly down in verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Right? So you see, those who would say that you have spiritual life, that they're, they have a deep faith, that they're very spiritual people apart from Christ, they are so deceived. Eternal life only comes in the Son. Right? There is no life apart from Him. John 3, 36. John says, Whoever believes the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not believe does not have eternal life, and God's wrath still abides on Him. Now, there's something here I think it's important for us to, un- to understand. I think a lot of times we misunderstand what the Bible means when it says eternal life. Okay? We misunderstand what the Bible means when, when it talks about eternal life, this gift of eternal life. Too often people, I think, believe that they should believe in Jesus and be baptized so that one day, so that one day they can live in heaven with God and, and with their loved ones who have passed away and not go to hell. And that's what we think eternal life means, right? One day I'm going to live in heaven, eternally. Well, certainly that has something to do with it, right? It, it, it talks about the duration of that life that we received in Christ, that, that it lasts forever. So, in, yes, in some way, eternal life is talking about our eternal reward, our life with Christ in heaven. But it's not only that. There's more to it than that. Now, how do I know this? Well, look very carefully at what John says in verse 12. Look down at verse 12 again. Whoever has the Son will one day have eternal life. Nope. It's not what he said. Whoever has the Son has life. You see the distinction there? You see the difference? So whatever the effect of our faith is, whatever this eternal life is, it's something that we possess right here and now. Whoever has the Son has life. Not one day they will have life, but has life. He doesn't say 
that if you believe in Jesus, that one day, you know, you'll, you'll have life. No, you have life right now. Jesus taught us this exact same thing. He says, I've come to give you life so that you might have it more abundantly. He says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. Whoever uh, comes to me, whoever comes to me knows the Father, right? That, that we have life in Jesus. So when the Bible talks about eternal life, it doesn't just talk about the duration of our life. It talks about the quality of life that we have in Christ. Jesus is the life giver. And oh, that we should desire to have that life in Jesus. So I want to ask you this morning, who do you say Jesus is? What does it mean to be a Christian? Who do you say that Jesus is? I think that is one of the most important questions we have to ask ourselves. And certainly it's the question that is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. Right? You can't truly understand what it means to be a Christian apart from knowing who Jesus is. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never really thought about that. Never really thought much about uh, who Jesus is. Maybe you're even here this morning and you grew up in this church and you never really thought about that question. You just kind of passively accept all the things that you've heard but you've never really dealt with it. You've never really thought about it, and you never really answered that question in your own mind. Well, I hope you see this morning that our faith as Christians has Jesus as its object, has God as its author, and has eternal life as its effect. Jesus' work on the cross is bearing our punishment is all the hope we have. And what you think about these things matters. Your answer to these questions matter. You can't ignore this question. You could put your trust in yourself. You could put your trust in your own works. You could, uh, you could put your trust and your hope in the fact that you're a good person. But I think ultimately you're going to find that you can't be a good person all the time. And that is going to cause your hope and your faith to waver. It's an unsatisfactory answer to our question. Or, you can put your trust in Jesus. You can put your trust in His cross. I pray that each of us this morning will find the answer that the Apostle Peter found in John chapter 6, verses 68 to 69. You remember those verses? John or uh, Peter says uh, to Jesus, and Jesus says, you guys want to go away? You guys want to leave me too? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I pray that's each of our answer this morning. But if it's not, won't you consider these things today? Won't you think about the offer of grace and forgiveness that Jesus gives to you in His life and His death and His resurrection? Repent and put your faith in Him. Don't die in your sin. Don't die in your sin and be left to face God's punishment for the rest of eternity. Pray. Ask God to give you a new heart. Ask God to open your eyes to these things and put your trust in Jesus 
and you can have life now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the fact that you came and you lived for us and you died on the cross to take our punishment for our sin and to give us new life. I pray, Father, that we would believe rightly about you, that we would have you as the object of our faith and you alone. Father, that we would receive this gift of salvation that God has given to us. Father, that we would love you, that we would worship you, and that with new hearts we would seek to obey all the things that you have given us to do. Pray these things in your name. Amen.